Are you a sexy, indulgent musician suffering from consistent long hours, crippling self-doubt, and constant disappointment? Well, do we have a show for you. Welcome to Sex, Drugs, and Disappointment, a bi-weekly deep dive into what it takes to be a healthy and successful musician in the modern industry. My name is Melody Kaiser. And my name is Dustin Williams. And we are both full-time musicians and creative entrepreneurs. And today we are joined by music teacher, composer, multi-instrumentalist, and avid horror fan, Daniel Garneau. Yay! Right. <laughs> in addition Thanks to composing. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. Um, yeah, and it's, so in addition to composing a two-act two uh, two rock opera under the name Clockwork Pioneer, Daniel holds a degree in music composition from Armstrong State University, also known as Georgia Southern now, and teaches music and performance full-time. So welcome to the show, Daniel. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, music and horror movies are basically my two favorite things ever, so super excited to be here. Yeah, hell yeah. Well, I know I have plenty of questions um, regarding that, but before we get into it, um, would you mind um, just giving us a little more backstory on um, your experience, what got you into music, maybe some of your music education? Um, I know we've had some really cool discussions about like music theory, and, and um, you've really turned me on to a lot of interesting concepts. So maybe we'll we'll try to touch on those, um, and then maybe like favorite artists and, and composers, um, anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, like a lot of kids, I was just thrown into a band class at one point in elementary school and just kind of, I just fell in love with it. started on trumpet and then just picked up guitar, piano and drums and French horn and such just along the way through high school and college and whatnot. Um, And yeah, in college, I learned obviously like a lot of music theory and stuff, but um, just really went, have been going down rabbit hole the last few years on just music history and just like really niche weird things which maybe we'll get to talk about today if we can um yes but as far as like what i listen to it's just about everything i know that's a little bit of a cliche answer but i I really do listen to almost everything um but a couple of my like specific favorite genres are like 70s prog rock uh like yes and king crimson and all that stuff like 60s jazz uh like 90s post-rock type stuff um but then i also i listen to like a bunch of rap music a bunch of like classical music too, so I'm all nice. over the place. I love That's it. That's awesome. Yeah, I've always I've always really admired that about you. Like your your musical scope um, oh, has always you. been very big. Yeah, dude. I mean, I could tell in in you know the the compositions that you uh, wrote for for Clockwork Pioneer, and uh, I still look forward to the opportunity to to, to work on that some more because it was a lot of fun. It was. So very different from oh, from anything it. I've done. Yeah, man, for sure, for sure. Um, speaking of Clockwork Pioneer, could do you want to just kind of like go into like where that started, how it started? Um, maybe you know tell the audience like what what it is, what is this rock opera that you've created, yeah, sure. what it's about, you know? Um, well, it's, like I said, I was into a lot of like seventies prog rock stuff, so I listened to a lot of Pink Floyd uh, when I was mm-hmm. like in middle school, high school, and it just kind of got me on this kick of like telling stories through music and having you know not that a rock opera is anything like new or anything and I mean, there's <laughs> obviously been operas for centuries but i just love the idea of telling stories through music and just kind of with all the things i've grown up with like music and with like horror movies that's kind of developed this story over several years um that kind of incorporates a lot of elements both musically and you know, thematically with a lot of horror films that are just things that i like um <laughs> and it just I've kind of picked up things along the way. It's been, as you know, a very long journey. I've been working on it for like a decade, probably over a decade at this point. Jeez. Um, but yeah, I try and incorporate you know, a lot of different elements of, you know, jazz and, and rock and classical. And, you know, when I get into a new genre, I usually try and incorporate that in there somehow. So it's an ever-changing thing. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of, uh, I don't know if the story itself is like anything uh, you know, uh, new well, or that interesting, but... okay. <laughs> yeah i'll go into it a little bit it's yeah please. it's like uh it's basically like uh this there's a couple and uh the wife passes away and then is given uh, an opportunity at a new life by this kind of like um 
sort of like fairy or sprite or you know kind of whatever mm. you care to think of it as and, okay uh, she's given the opportunity to come back to life but only within the realm of this you know character's ability to be able to bring her back to life so she's not resurrected as a human she's just kind of grown back to life as a plant uh, oh which is, okay you know, she's yeah. kind of like a like a plant fairy or like you know whatever you know every culture has got their kind of you know where all the greek gods have their own specific kind of power it's sort of that that kind of idea so she's she's able to come back to life and be with her husband but at the caveat of like she's a flower and can't leave the garden oh (laughs) man that's so cool that's so cool like you really undermine the originality of that rock opera (laughs) you're like oh it's nothing (laughs) new she's just a plant (laughs) and like i mean you know i say it but if I say it's like a totally original idea, you know, somebody's going to come out and be like, well, uh, actually, there was a story written in like 13th <laughs> century that had a flower in it. So <laughs> nothing's really like everything's got a um, uh, something that, that is parallel, you know, like you could compare right. any piece of art to, to anything. But I, I always sure. thought it was very unique. And um, it's I mean, so Melody, like a, a lot of the song names when, when we were first learning this material, which. So it was like me and Bobby and um, um, well, Kane. eventually Jack, Jack yeah. and Kane came in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm Jack. trying to remember. Like, was there? Uh, I guess it was just you, me, Bobby, and Joe, right? For a At while, first, yeah. like before yeah, everybody first. else came in. Yeah, um, and and um, I just remember, you know, like starting to learn the material, and you had sent us um, like the music. Um, in written form, but then also the tracks to listen to. And it was musically so unique um, and challenging too. Like, I mean, there's melody, there's some stuff in in this that's like, like that, that one section in like 10, eight where it doesn't start on the one and you're just what? like, wait, yeah. where is this? It's so, and it starts on like a 16th note subdivision of like B eight or something. I don't remember, but uh, <laughs> it, that's so funny that you bring that part up, Dustin, because I've uh-huh. I've been trying to do a lot of recordings like of it and like trying to get a little bit more into production since I'm just kind mm-hmm. of like on my own here. And so I've been doing like bass recordings in in my best like Dustin uh, like trying to play like <laughs> you as best I can, and it's not going well. Yeah, but I was I was at school. I, I know. <laughs> I've been trying for a year to replicate it, and I can't. <laughs> and then but i was on the drum set the other day at school of rock and i was like i was playing through that exact part trying to do what bobby does and i'm just like, dude this is so hard i cannot do this it's dude. like i fucking wrote it and i can't even play along with it so <laughs> that's that's more so a testament awesome. that's not me being like oh look at this complicated stuff there that's just me being like bobby's incredible and you are incredible like i, oh, I seriously tell people still to this day legends about both of you <laughs> the legend. So, um, <laughs> Cheers, what software? <laughs> what software do you use to compose? Um, I just use Finale oh, and, okay. and Logic, and and those are not because those are the two things I condone using or recommend. They're just the things that I happen to have, and I've used them for a decade, so I'm sure cool with them. That's awesome. So appreciate um, it when. Well, first of all, yeah, another thing I'd like to point out for, for the listener is just like um, how, first of all, how humble Daniel is being right now, because this man is an incredible musician. Um, as we mentioned earlier, multi-instrumentalist. I mean, like he can play so many key, uh, just to list them off, uh, keys, bass, guitar, um, drums now, apparently, which I didn't know. <laughs> um, the man can sing. And then French horn, I believe, right? That was like your... Um, French horn is like, yeah, I technically minored in it. Like you have to do an instrument and a secondary instrument. So composition okay. was my first instrument. Um, but yes, and French yeah, horn's hard to play. Like that is not an easy instrument to play. Like it, t- it requires a lot of lung capacity. So from what I've been told, I've never tried, but like just from what I've heard, like you really got to work at it. It's it's an awkward one to play for sure, partly because of the lung capacity, um, but it would probably take more for like a trombone or a tuba. But more, it's it's and it's so funny teaching kids French horn because the the reason that's so hard is because you can put down almost any fingering and it doesn't matter if you're correct or not. You're just gonna get a note out, so you really have to know like exactly what you want to hear, and then you can really put down any fingers you wanted to and probably still get it. But like, oh, fingerings wow. are almost not important. 
It's like almost it's like almost, a bugle. <laughs> it it really is, and that's almost all of our like like general warmups. I mean, you do things like scales and all the regular sure. stuff you would, but a lot of warmups specifically for uh, French horn is just doing lip slurs where you just like hold down one fingering and you just go through like the entire harmonic series. And then once you get past like halfway through the staff, it's uh, like I said, you can literally just ignore fingerings. It's just play. As long as you know in your lips how to play it and in your ears what you want to hear, you're probably fine. So those are always fun exercises. But that, I mean, that takes a lot of skill, like to, and and it takes a really good ear too. Cause like, you know, I mean, I've, I've met, um, bass players and guitar players that don't have like the best ear, but they can play well because they've memorized patterns and you know, that world as a, as a bass and guitar player. So, you know, like the pattern world, but then you're also coming from this, uh, position of, of playing, um, you know, a, a, a brass instrument, a wind instrument that really is so much, um, to me again, like so much more challenging, like, cause you had mentioned too earlier that like, you know, you kind of got thrust into band. Um, I, I wasn't thrust in, like I, I, you know, they gave us the opportunity to sign up and, um, I did it and I freaking hated it though. Like I, I right away I realized like, Oh, this is not for me. I tried the flute and then the clarinet and I was, I could not do either of them. And so for a long time, like I thought music was not going to be my thing. Um, so on the converse for for you, like you went into band, you said, I think you said you, you started on trumpet. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then eventually transitioned to French horn at, at some point. Was that still when you were in high school or is that into the college years? Um, that was in sixth grade actually when they switched oh. me over to French horn. Oh, right. Cause you started, uh, yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, um, was that a choice or was that just like a, Hey, you're playing this now. Uh, a little bit of both. We had a lot okay. of trumpet players as is usually the case of most middle school bands and zero yeah. French horn players. So they were just like, all right, somebody in the trumpet section has to play it. So I was like, all right, I'll do it. All right. Yeah, <laughs> nice. Nothing, nice. That's nothing, like, <laughs> nothing sticks out worse than like a French horn hitting a bad note. <laughs> you can always Tell hear me about it. it. It's yeah. Like, wow. <laughs> It's very unique, for sure. Yeah, Me- Melody's a fellow oh. band kid too. Actually, she um, plays the oh, saxophone. Yeah, what did you play? Oh, it was the easy oh, nice. instrument. <laughs> oh. I played the saxophone. <clears throat> That's awesome. I mean, I've though. never been good at saxophone. <laughs> I've tried before, and uh, woodwinds are not my thing. We'll just put it as that. Isn't that so funny? Yeah, I tried yeah, playing trumpet for like three days, and then mysteriously, it broke. So I don't oh, know no. if my roommates were just like, ah, oh, we've had enough of that. <laughs> <laughs> so like, if yeah, that tells you anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I still um, want to get back into it. <laughs> you should, you should totally do it. It's never too late. I mean, I, I, right? especially cause you at least have some experience in like woodwinds and like, you know, as a singer with a great like range and capacity, like it'd probably come a little more natural to you. Than it would for me. Yeah, for but sure. they're so different. It's the embouchure. My lips yeah. don't like doing that. <laughs> that buzzing thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It takes some getting used to for sure. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, so, uh, Daniel, uh, on the topic of, of Clockwork Pioneer, because there's something else I was going to ask. Um, so, actually, I have two questions about that. The first one is. Um, when we were discussing the story, I, I wanted to know like what brought that idea to you um, of like the reincarnation kind of like plant. I'm using the word reincarnation loosely here, but you know, becoming a plant, like um, you know, why, why, why that versus, you know, some other element of nature or um, you know, something more like ghostly, like what popped out to you? Um, this is, I'm going to sound like probably just like such a huge douchebag when I say this, but I I mean this like so truthfully, (laughs) like literally I was just playing piano or like guitar or whatever it was at the time. And I don't know what I played, but I just like played something. And then that's just kind of like what I saw in my head. It was like, I don't, I don't want to go as far as to be like, oh, the music was speaking to me, but like, I just heard the music and that was like what popped in my head. I don't know. That's, That's, that's all the explanation I can give. That's cool. I, I don't think that's that's definitely not douchey. I would say that's like, like 
very, it's almost synesthesia or if that's the, I think I'm saying that right. It, you know, when, when you see yeah, like it is, colors. It is very much like that. Yeah. That's so cool. Does that always happen when you write or when you play? Um, usually when I'm writing. Yeah. Mm. Cause I try it. And this used to, Bobby used to always point this out when we would play. Cause he would, cause like he and I both come from like, kind of like different places of, of playing music. You know, Bobby's like very technical <laughs> and he would always get annoyed with me sometimes because I would, I would never have like a specific time signature or feel or something in mind. I was just like, <laughs> yeah, man, it just goes like this. Like, just feel it. <laughs> He'd get so mad. But that's like when I'm writing, I'm trying to like find like, I mean, sometimes I hear what I want, but then sometimes I'm just mm-hmm. trying to like find where I like feel a certain thing or where I like, yeah, kind of in my head, like see, you know, I think of it like a movie. So like if I hit a certain chord, I'm like, is that like the direction I want to go as far as like what's happening in the story? Like if this were a movie, is would this fit as far as a score goes? And that's usually what I try and find is just like what it what feels right to me more than anything. That's great. That's awesome. I love it. Yeah. I mean, that's that's how, you know, I think like the best songs are written that way and the best visual art and, and film art and so on and so forth is is birthed more out of a feeling or or a desire to communicate that feeling maybe, you know, than it is like, what's the cool scale that like includes this flat seven, but also this sharp, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's just, so that's cool. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's really dope. Um, yeah, for sure. That's awesome. Uh, when, when you're composing, this is the other question. Um, how do you start? Like, does it usually start on keyboard or guitar? Does it start with a melody? Um, or all of the above. It just kind of depends. Um, a little bit of everything you just said. Mm. <laughs> and I'll elaborate a little bit. Okay. Um, I usually, because I have some students where we we talk about writing music. And, you know, when I was in school and they would teach me how to write, they would often tell me, like, start with the melody and then build around that. And there's mm. absolutely nothing wrong with that. But I have almost mm. never done that in my entire life when I'm writing. I usually start from a place of just wanting to like, um, kind of like I was saying about feeling, I usually want to mm-hmm. start with specific chords mm-hmm. and I usually, I will pick either a guitar or a keyboard based on what is kind of in my head. Or sometimes I'll just hop on finale and like put in a bunch of like brass parts or string parts and just like see what oh. works. Okay. Um, I don't know, sometimes I just get weird ideas. It's like, um, uh, sometimes it's time signature based. I'm just like, ooh, what if there was a part in five and a part in seven, like at the same time or something? And I'll just like, put it <laughs> together and mess around. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So, so um, it's it really sounds like this perfect like combination or balance of of like it, to me uh, uh, of like the left and the right brain, you know, tropes of like logical you know, here's the math to it. Here's, um, you know, academically what has been shown to work, but then also that other side of like, you know, pure feeling, pure imagery. Um, how, how do you, I mean, I guess I was going to ask like, how do you balance that? I assume, you know, at this point it's very natural. It's just how it happens for you. But, um, was there ever a point where, Cause like, you know, you went to school for composition. So before you did that, where was music theory, something that you were interested in, or was it just like, uh, something you kind of picked up along the way after realizing what you were doing? Like, you know what I mean? Like, was it the idea that made you curious or was it like, you did want to have that kind of like guideline? So I started, um, in high school, really getting into music theory. And I bought like mm-hmm. a music theory for dummies book and just like was I would just spend like all of my time in class just writing down scales and modes and everything. And yeah, that it was, that's how it started. I was like, I know, <laughs> I, I am such a nerd. <laughs> but then like, yeah, when I started taking like composition lessons, my teacher, uh, he, he was honestly like uh, just so perfect. So like the way we communicated, it was just like, like we were right on the same level as, as far mm-hmm. as like, because he would make a lot of movie references. And I went to mm-hmm. school my first couple of years in Montana and I was in a room of seven other kids and none of them what? had seen like more than five movies collectively between all of them. What? So, uh, and I know, I know it's ridiculous. And I was from obviously from Georgia and my teacher, even though he's in Montana, having me from Alabama. So we communicated via like Star Wars references and Waffle House references. So I just like, <laughs> like clicked so perfectly. 
<laughs> Star Wars like, and Waffle House. It worked That's out awesome. really well. Yeah, I mean, those, those are the keys. Um, but yeah, he, he he kind of got me. He talked to me a lot about music theory, obviously, because that was like his job was to teach me music theory. But he was also very much like, uh, you know, he would play me some of his music and just like other music that to me was like so weird and foreign at the time. And he would be like, you know, this, this music I think is really great because like it doesn't have these scales or it doesn't have, you know, those things we were talking about in class the other day. Like, yeah, fuck that. We're just going to completely ignore it. And we're just going to create this mood and like this space with uh, with whatever he was working on. So it kind of was like a transition, even though I was still obsessed with music theory. It was mm-hmm. kind of like showing me kind of a different side of it, more on the side of like mood and like atmosphere. Um, and I've kind of gravitated more towards that recently like in the last two or three years. But yeah, I think they're both excellent tools. Uh, you know, yeah, I think I usually approach it from a space of like trying to capture what it is, like what emotion I want or what feeling I want or like what mm. kind of scene I want to set. And then I'll approach it after the fact of like, okay, what am I actually doing as far as music theory goes? And then maybe I'll make some adjustments from there just you know, for whatever reason. Right. Okay. All right. Yeah. That makes sense. I love I hope it. that answered your question. Sorry, that got really very, long. No, this, no, no. I, th- we're here to to talk to you about this very thing. So there is no uh, no limit on what you want to say. Um, yeah, we're here to nerd oh. out, man. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Yeah, speaking of nerd out, because I, I we're talking about theory, I would like to touch on one thing. Um, you introduced me to this concept that I, I, I'm going to try to get the name right here. I think it's the the Lydian harmonic overtone series or or maybe the harmonic overtone series is one thing and then the lydian like uh harmony thing that you were talking to me about about how like lydian is like the purest scale and uh can you can you go into that a little more can you first of all um what is the lydian scale how would you describe that for those Um, who don't know all right so lydian scale usually how i explain it to people is it's just a major scale with a sharp four which is probably mm-hmm. how everyone explains it. That's pretty mm-hmm. straightforward in that respect. Um, but the, yeah, the Lydian, I think it's the Lydian chromatic concept is what we were talking about, which is fr- is by a book that was in a concept that was developed by, uh, I think his name is George Russell, uh, mm-hmm. like in the 50s, he was a jazz player. And um, it's basically the idea that if you were, you know, going through the harmonic series, you know, you start with an octave and then you get a fifth and a fourth and a major third and so on. If mm-hmm. you go through there, the sharp four is the first one you get as opposed to a natural chord. So like uh, if you were to, you know, base the harmonic series off of C, you would hit an F sharp or you hit an F natural. Um, so his, that was his theory was that like sharp four, the Lydian scale is like the natural, like it, like in nature, there exists a scale and it is Lydian. It's not major. And I don't, I'm not necessarily saying like he is like exactly correct or anything, but it's an interesting theory. And I personally, I am a fan of Lydian because it does to me kind of feel like, you know, I use Lydian in the, uh, in the rock opera. That's all about oh, yeah. more than I use the, the Ionian scale. So a hundred percent, maybe that says yeah. something. I don't know. <laughs> well, it's, it's cool too. Um, just on that note that, uh, cause you know, Jack, who was part of the, the, um, full filled out orchestra, um, he has told me more than once that Lydian is also his favorite scale and that like he tends to write stuff around that scale. And uh, this is weird. This is a random thing to say, but uh, a lot of the most interesting like composers that I've met um, throughout my musical career, like especially ones who kind of like compose like full pieces for orchestra or like full band um compositions like i would say the the majority of them have specifically said that the lydian is like their favorite mode so i wonder if there's some kind of connection there i don't know why it's just because you know like it's like go ahead Uh, just like for me i think uh because the tritone is based off of the root whereas Mm -hmm. like in a major scale your tritone is between the third and the seventh I think because it's based off the root, that might have like a specific kind of pull. And that also when you go to like, again, if we're in C and you hit that F sharp, it doesn't necessarily sound like it's out of key, even though it's a tritone. So you can easily like go get like a you know, a good melodic line between like E, F sharp and G, just like mm-hmm. fits so well. Um, but since we're eventually going to be talking about some film scores, if you watch literally any 90s movie, 
they all use Lydian. Every yeah. single 90s movie has Lydian in their score. It's hilarious. E.T., Back to the Future, The what? Simpsons. Yeah. I know it's not a movie, but... Yeah. <laughs> it sounds so whimsical. Like, it's so bright yeah, it does. and it's airy. Great. And, yeah. Um, it also fits really well, like, when you're kind of going between major and minor. Like, to hit... for go, Coming from minor to go major, and then on top of that to go Lydian, all of a sudden it's, like, fantastical sounding. You know, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. A fantastical. Great tool. That's a good way, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's perfect for you know for Clockwork Pioneer and and for the rock opera because yeah, I, I feel like the story, you know, the one that that you've kind of described to us here and and the one that I understand from knowing you and playing it, um, it has that whimsy to it for sure. You know, which is you know part of that originality of of where you're you know, focused on kind of the nature side of it. And then, you know, again, musically, like it's so complex because there's these really big movements of like high energy, challenging moments. And then it's very open and spacey and, and ambient. Um, and yeah, I mean, dude, I, if you can't tell already, I like, I'm excited to like be able to, to play this stuff again. Cause it, it's just a good time. And the people involved are all so great, you know? So I know. I wish I, I called Bobby actually a couple months ago. I had like some weird physics music question to ask him. And then he oh. said he'd do some research and call me back. And he hasn't yet, but hopefully. <laughs> what did you ask him? Oh, man. I went down like such a rabbit hole. I found this like recording. Well, I found basically just this. Um, and it's been a couple months since I was reading about it. So I might get some things wrong. But basically, there was um, like, I don't know if it was specifically. Pythagoras or just like one of those like Greek guys had this uh-huh. theory that like the planets are vibrating at a particular frequency and that it's just so that like we can't hear it because like we're on the planet and we're far enough away from the other planets to where we can't hear it but theoretically if the planets are vibrating they must be making a sound and then like mm. you know several centuries later uh I think a mathematician named Kepler was like you know, maybe he was onto something and he like calculated all the ratios and like determined what pitches the planets should be vibrating at. And it's like just this really crazy math, but I couldn't find any specific like algorithms or whatever to how he figured that out. So I was calling Bobby to see if he happened to know any weird physics stuff that <laughs> could help me figure it out. Well, yeah, I mean, I've Dude, seen you got videos me where it, yeah, I've seen videos where it's like, you know, Jupiter, the sound of Jupiter and it's just like, whoo. So, yeah, I mean, it is literally that. Yeah, it's like a tone for sure. I don't know yeah. what it is, but I assumed it was like the atmosphere. I didn't know it was like the whole planet vibrating. Well, that was again, I'm I'm by far this is why I called Bobby because I have absolutely no idea when it comes to like planets and physics and things. Me I just either. thought it was yeah. interesting. So that's um it's like cuz I've heard something about this too. I've seen like some random YouTube videos probably. And, and uh, I think it's something about how they're translating like the infrared or the, like the visual signal into an audio format or something like that. Oh. Right. Maybe so. I don't really I don't know. know. Could be. Yeah. yeah I have no idea. <laughs> I'm not going to get Bobby on here and we'll talk about <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> yes. I yo, mean, that would make fun. sense though. Cause like, I know that's how they make colors out of like, you know, space pictures when you see like nebulas mm-hmm. and they're all crazy beautiful. It They just picked colors by the wavelength of the like electromagnetic impulses that are sent out and they just like assigned visual color to that. Yeah. Because it's, yeah, no, it's not actually colorful. It's just like gas or something. So it would make sense they do the same thing right. with sound. So I think you're onto huh. something there probably, Dustin. <laughs> well, I don't know. I just I feel like I'm just regurgitating something I heard. But on that note, um, so Daniel, uh, one of the things we wanted to discuss with you today was specifically the music and composition of that music in horror films, um, maybe horror games if you're into that as well. But um, you know, primarily horror films because it's something you and I have directly talked about before. Um, so there's a lot we could really kind of talk about with that. Um, I guess uh, the first question I would ask for you is um, like, who are some of your favorite horror movie composers and what films did they compose for? Um, And then you can talk about, you know, why you like them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I like most of the ones I'm into are mostly older ones because uh, mm-hmm. most horror movies in the last like 20 years have been getting away from having like themes and like you mm-hmm. know, music that's like orchestrated. They're doing like more ambient stuff and just more sounds and noise, mm-hmm. which I think is great as far as horror movies go. Um, but for me, as far as like dissecting the music, there's not much, at least for me to dive into because I don't know much mm-hmm. about that. Um, but I like, um, obviously, if anyone, anyone who's ever watched a horror movie is, has probably seen a John Carpenter film or heard a John Carpenter score, whether mm-hmm. they know it or not, because he did oh, the yeah. Halloween score, which I, everyone on the earth has probably heard. Oh, yeah. Uh, but he, he did some of my favorite movies. Uh, the Thing is obviously class one, although he didn't do the score for that. That was actually Ennio Morricone, who also does a lot of great horror scores. So I would throw him up there as, as one of the greats also. Okay. Um, uh, Pino Dinaggio did a lot of classic scores in like the 70s and uh, like a Carrie specifically. And that's what I think one of the best horror scores ever. Uh, Bernard Herrmann did like just tons psycho, and tons of right? scores for like yep psycho exactly and and like half of other you know hitchcock stuff and he did a lot of sci-fi stuff in the 50s and stuff um so he's like absolute just like top tier not even just in horror just like all around bernard herman's great and then um as far as like maybe newer composers go i guess like colin stetson is pretty great he's mm. mostly primarily like just known as a saxophone player but he did he does some scores as well, like Hereditary is probably the biggest, most well-known okay. one that he's done, uh, which also is a fantastic score and a great move. Spooky, yeah. I have not. Sure. It's a really good one. Definitely. So you mentioned Carrie um, in particular. Oh, sorry, Melody, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, 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 go ahead. Um, I was just going to ask, like, uh, do you... Is there anything in like what you said it was like one of the greatest of all time. So do you want to talk about that? I guess, you know, just kind of like tell us what 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 you feel yeah. is so great about it. Um, absolutely. How much of a rabbit hole am I allowed to go down? How conspiratorial as, could I get as, as, as deep as you, you want to go, go, brother? Yeah. Oh, man. Well, I think it's great for a lot of reasons, like just general things. It's got a lot of great melodies throughout there. There's like. All, all it's one of the like true movies where there is a like every character has a theme and so like as far as my writing goes and like i like have characters with like their own motifs and that kind of thing mm-hmm. excellent job it does all those kinds of things um and then there's even like like um kind of some of my favorite stuff is like when somebody's coming down the stairs you get like this crazy flute thing that's like a really fast descending flute passage so it's just like fun stuff when people are going down the music is going down it's just like nerdy stuff oh, like that, that yeah, probably almost, yeah okay. to, but uh, i think it's great um but yeah the, i think that score is incredible for really just one scene in particular and i think assuming my conspiracy theories are correct i think this is the greatest <laughs> like score with just one scene ever it's so incredible because okay. the whole movie is just like strings and flute and like uh some piano stuff it's very light and it's just those instruments for almost the entire thing and then uh i'm assuming most people have seen carrie but just to get people up to speed in case anybody doesn't know uh, sure a girl is like bullied at school and she has psychic powers and she is asked to prom as like prank and she gets the pig's blood uh thrown on her and then she just goes crazy and murders everybody at the school mm-hmm. so like all that's super fun obviously great stuff <laughs> as you do <laughs> um, you know as you do we, we all have those times which actually <laughs> side note real quick bernard herman was supposed to do the score for that movie he passed away uh during its production so uh, oh you know, wow. i didn't know that filled in yeah, so they renamed the school in the movie uh, Bates High School as like reference to Psycho, and then there's a lot of uh, like violin, like the rant, 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 those kinds of things all throughout the movie. Specifically, whenever she uses her powers, which is also why a thing that I think is cool. But all of that was just kind of right. pay homage to to Bernard since he passed. That's away. awesome. Um, yeah, so a lot of great stuff. Obviously, a lot of love there, and like from one composer to another, uh, which I also really appreciate quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But anyway, after the scene in the uh, where she's killing everybody at the prom, she walks home and you get like I was saying about going up the stairs and down the stairs as she's mm-hmm. walking into her house. She's like going up the stairs and you, this cello is just doing this kind of like uh, like it'll go up a minor third, come down a second, go up a minor third, come down a second, that kind of a 
a sort of staggered, sort of almost That's like a cool. stair step kind of motif. Yeah. So it's leading you right into it. And it's the best scene in the movie. She opens the door and there's just like hundreds of candles everywhere. And immediately when she opens the door for the gate, first time in the entire movie, we get music that is not strings, not flute and not piano. It's an organ with trumpets and trombone. And it's like immediately such just from changing the instrumentation, like such a tonal shift. And like mm. you can see from the movie that it's supposed to feel like you're in a church. But like yeah. having the organ there and having like the trombones and everything really like solidify that that kind of feeling because nobody hears an organ without thinking of church. It's like that's the instrument. I mean, yeah, it just immediately evokes that. So that's great. And here's where I start to get a little bit uh, conspiratorial here is because okay. <laughs> that piece, that piece is uh, it's in three, four, um, which there if, if for anyone who has read music before you've probably seen like a capital letter c at the beginning of your music at some point and we usually assume that means common time so you just play in four four which is more or less correct that mm-hmm. that is why people use it but way back when and like you know really early days of, of music notation they used to use a system called mensural notation and i'll probably get a little bit of this mixed up but basically they would have like a circle with a dot in it and that mm-hmm. was like I think that was nine eight. So you had three beats divided into three separate like subbeats. So it was like <laughs> it was like the holiest time signature you could be in. Oh right? like one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. So you had three threes. It's the holy trinity, the holiest time signature you can write in. Yeah. And then you had a like a half circle with a dot. And I think that was uh six eight, because you had two beats that were subdivided into three. So right. you still had a three, but it wasn't quite as holy. And then from there, you'd go down like another notch and you'd have three, four, so three beats divided into two. And then your least holy time signature was just half of the circle with no dot in it. So basically a letter C, that was four, four, no threes anywhere. Wow. So the fact that he wrote it in three is like, I think was meant to be like a nod to like, you know, we're representing the Holy Trinity with the music. I don't know for sure if that was the case, but I mean, based off of the logic you've just explained, I I would be inclined to believe that you are correct. (laughs) I I, mean, thank you. I mean, especially because it sounds good. Yeah, right. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I went like super down a rabbit hole uh, because I don't think the instrumentation was a mistake either. Obviously, the organ was there. But I think given the context of the movie and this particular scene that he was referencing this uh, specific piece um, by, or at least referencing a composer named Gabrielli, who was a um, Renaissance era composer, like at the end of the 16th mm-hmm. century. Okay. And he was like, one of the reasons he is still so well known is because at that point in time, they did, they were really not fans of having instruments in the church but he really wanted to use instruments in the church and they had like mm-hmm. the, the you know church had this whole meeting they would they would have meetings you know every once in a while and they would discuss how the church is going to move forward or deal with things and whatnot and at one point they discussed music and they were like what do these kids want with these instruments in the church for like can't allow that because <laughs> uh, you know it, it, music was just getting complicated and music was in yeah. different languages and if you're in the congregation and you can't understand the words like you're not really worshiping properly and then yeah. you had too much counterpoint going on. And if you can't sing along, you, you're not worshiping pro- properly. So instruments, there's no words at all. So Gabrielle was like very instrumental. I, which I normally do mean pun, but I did not mean that pun, uh, <laughs> but he was really instrumental in like uh, that shift uh-huh. uh, from, he kind of put him in as well as other composers kind of put the church in a position where they, were forced to allow instruments in the church or risk like losing oh. half their congregation. So the fact that he referenced like that piece specifically or that composer specifically, because he was known for like this one really big piece, which had an organ, trumpets, and trombones. Oh. Which is the instrumentation okay. in the movie. Right. And also one violin. And at the end of that scene, there's one violin that just does like the melody one time. So oh. like, uh, it's I haven't found any proof of him talking about it, but I'm like so certain, like all these things line up too, too perfectly for that to be like a total mistake. Well, and you were talking I mean, about yeah. character themes that would make sense because in Carrie, the mom is super religious, right? That's part of the story. That's exactly. So right. she, you know, 
Gabrielli was putting the church in this position where they kind of had to concede or like, you know, lose a lot of believers. And the mother was kind of doing that to Carrie, putting her in a position where she either had to, uh, you know, bow down to her her mother and her religion or fight back. And that's kind of what she had to do. So, yeah, I think honestly, it fits thematically as far as the story. It like works so perfectly musically. It's like, ah, it's so perfect. Yeah, it has a lot of context. I didn't even realize that. That's awesome. Yeah, I doubt anyone else has ever noticed that. I'm just like such a nerd when it comes to these really niche things. So I just like, like I said, went down such a rabbit hole for like weeks. I was just reading information about all this random stuff. Yeah, I want to ask. I want to ask you about John Carpenter um, because I'm also a John Carpenter fan. I think what I really appreciate about it is it's you know it was where scores kind of changed from orchestration to like synthesizers. He really kind of yes. made the most of that. Um, and I even like um, he composed the theme to the fog, right? With the organs yes. and everything. Yeah. Like, I think that that is really just smart storytelling. Um, so I kind of wanted to get your perspective on him as a composer. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm a huge John Carpenter fan. Um, and I think like he's obviously beloved within the horror community for like all kinds of reasons. I don't know. I haven't. I don't talk to a lot of like non-horror fans about horror composers, so I don't know what like other people's general like idea of him is. <laughs> um, but I know that like, you know, like Roger Ebert just hates like everything John Carpenter's ever done because <laughs> as far as like his <laughs> movies go, they're like, ah, this is just like schlock. So I would imagine that most like, you know, music snobs or whatever are probably just like, ah, his music's too simple. It's just like a piano melody repeated a bunch of times or like, what what is the synthesizer nonsense? But like, yeah, man, I'm a huge fan, as a lot of people are. And that's part of it is because, yeah, like you said, it was like almost strictly orchestrated, you know, music for films until John Carpenter came along and just like, hey, synths work, too. And they're cheaper. And then everyone was like, yeah, dude, you're totally right. I mean, yeah, so many (laughs) movies from that era, like did the synthesizer thing, like Phantasm and and The Shining. Yes. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Phantasm is amazing. I know. Yeah. I love it. I love the synthesizer stuff. I think it's so cool. Yeah, and the shining, the little extra Easter egg, I'm in for people who are non musicians maybe who have watched it, that uh main synth line, the beginning of the movie is a DSE ray, which is like a centuries old piece of music, uh, which is like it's specifically with a particular verse from Revelations in the Bible, but uh from my understanding is like that particular melody along with that particular, you know, verse, those two things are basically inseparable. And that's basically just like, you know, you put that in your movie if you want it to sound like doom. And it's in a lot of movies. It's obviously in The Shining. It's in somewhere in Lord of the Rings, somewhere in Star Wars. Uh, it's in Frozen 2, it, the, the like four <laughs> notes that right. they sing. And you're, you're talking about like the, the la, 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 yeah. la, la. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So that's just a fun one. Yeah, I love that. I always try and keep an ear out for those. Yeah. What is your opinion Does that happen on... In... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Dustin, because I'm going to... No, no, no. I, I, was just, gonna... I was just going to ask, uh, does that happen in Nightmare Before Christmas too? Um, I would not be surprised. I haven't watched that movie since I heard, since I like read about that. So I haven't uh-huh. like watched through it to listen for that specifically, but I would, I would not be surprised. It just it, it it reminded me of making Christmas or whatever it is making Christmas. Da, 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 da. Yeah, you're right. Then. It's just kind of had that. Definitely vibe. could be. Yeah. I sure. mean, you just sang I it. <laughs> okay. If yeah, that's, that's how it goes. Like yeah, if that's how it goes, then yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, Melody, sorry, you go ahead. You had a question. No, I was just gonna see. So one of my favorite movements, kind of in horror was the shift with like Jerry Goldsmith and like the use of like voices in horror scores. I think that that's like super cool. I wanted to get your opinion on that. Like, is that something that you like? Is that something, have you used voices in composition, you know, as instruments before in your own work? Um, I, I went through and like, I know Dustin, I so appreciate that you said I was a good singer earlier, but I'm like, so not a good singer. (laughs) And so, like, for years, I just, like, refused <laughs> to sing, like, anything. And I really, like, for a little bit, uh, you know, went through this phase where I was just, like, 
like I hated all singers. I don't know if it was just because I was jealous <laughs> or I was just like, you know, you can you can have music without singing, like feature a French horn. Come on. <laughs> so for like a really long time, I was just like so against like vocals, especially choirs and everything. But no, really in the last year, I've really come around to like specifically listening to a lot of choral music, uh, whether it's in a film or not. I've been trying to write a lot more with that because I think it sounds really good. And I think in a horror movie context, especially it can fit in like, like so, so well. Um, this, the score for Scream, and I'm blanking on uh, his name who, who wrote the score for that. Here, um, I got you. But he used vote. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Marco Beltrami. Beltrami, yes. Yes. Um, yeah, that was, I think Scream was like his first score or one of his earliest ones. And uh, Wes Craven went to him and said, I want a score that doesn't sound like anything, you know, from the last 20 or 30 years. So like no orchestration like you would have in like a psycho type movie or a carry. No synthesizers like you'd have in a John Carpenter film, just like something completely different. And that's what he did. He came, he, he honestly... Love the guy, love the music. He basically ripped off Ennio Morricone. He will admit that for sure. I'm sure. Like I've read him talk about it before, but he basically just made Scream sound like a Western, and so he used vocals in there, and then like a lot of like we were talking about, kind of like using noise and sound effects earlier. He would use like you know thunder sheets and that kind of thing to really create just like this this cool atmosphere between noise, which is like you know obviously you're just like banging on metal versus like the most natural sound that can be produced which is your voice so it's i i'm a huge fan of voice in horror films and i think when used properly as with everything but when used properly like they can be really really effective like um rosemary's baby i think is another one that uses uses vocals very well yeah if, if you're familiar with that one i am yeah that's a great movie um yeah what what is your opinion on like danny elfman and like the whimsical horror kind of stuff are you a fan? Uh, I think that stuff is, yeah, I'm, I think that stuff is really fun. So like if you were to put that score, like, you know, in, I don't know, like a Halloween movie or something, I'd be like, what is this? It doesn't, right. doesn't work at all. <laughs> but when it works, yeah, like in the stuff that Danny Elfman writes scores for, I think they're perfect. Right. And yeah, I think he's not that anyone is like shit talking Danny Elfman, but I feel like he is actually kind of underrated. I don't think, you know, people know Nightmare Before Christmas, obviously, but I don't think they're like. You know, man, Danny Elfman wrote a really good score. I think they just know this is Halloween and that's all they care about. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he has true, so much true. cool stuff. I'm definitely a fan of his. Just for like the whimsical yeah. side of it. It just, you know, he it's kind of more spooky than horror to me, but it's still cool. It's it's very like Halloween specific. Yeah, it's like such a niche. It's not like like horror music or like right. scary music. It's right. just like, this is the fun side of Halloween. Yeah, I, I totally dig it. That's awesome. So for our listeners that aren't musicians, which we have several at this point, um, what would you say are like some of the common um, kind of tropes or techniques that you hear in music? And like, how do you think they've changed through like the history of like horror cinema? You were saying that recently, like it's soundscape, but like, could you walk everybody through like how did it change from even if you just start at 60s, like 60s, 70s with like Bernard Herman and then kind of through, you know, like what would you say are some like common themes you've seen as a fan and as a composer? Yeah, absolutely. This is not shocking to anybody, but it's also something I nerd out about quite a bit. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. You you stop me when it's too much. No, you go ahead. <laughs> yeah, going back to like, like, you know, early days of cinema, it was just film. Like, there was no sound along with it. So they would just have, like, you know, a piano player in the room when the movie was playing. Or, you know, they would have to add audio to it later. And that's where, like, the earliest, you know, vampire films would use, like, that Bach organ toccata. The da na na da na 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 That's kind of why we, like, associate with that. That with, like, vampires and horrors. Because they would just use old classical music uh, over these scores. Right. And that's kind of where, like, like film score music came from and then obviously as technology progressed people started writing legitimate scores for films and that's where you know a little bit down the line where you get your bernard herman's and uh music in like the 50s like 40s 50s 60s just music in general is like so dense so thick 
And I actually have yet to like dive in and really like figure out what it is that makes it sound that way. But it's, I love listening to it. It's so fascinating. And I love like fifties horror sci-fi scores. Cause they all use like theremins in there and just like really early synths. Mm. And it's like so hilarious, but it's like fits so <laughs> perfectly. Yeah, for sure. And then, uh, yeah, once you get into sixties, uh, it's really interesting. Um, I think Rosemary's baby is actually probably a, one of the better examples actually bookending it between psycho and rosemary's baby is like like a perfect uh kind of timeline there because you get psycho with you know bernard herman and it's entirely orchestral obviously and he uses a lot of it's it's been a while since i've watched it or listened to it i think it's mostly if not entirely strings and that's where you get like the like really high screechy violins so you're starting to see like instruments used to make sound effects less so than to play notes Mm. Um, which is really interesting. And then fast forward to Rosemary's Baby, where at the late 60s, that score is, uh, it uses some sense. It uses a lot of voice uh, throughout all the, or throughout the whole movie. And it's very jazzy because the guy who wrote it is, was a jazz pianist. So it's oh. a pretty jazzy score. Um, and so, yeah, That's through cool. kind of late 60s, early 70s, uh, you start to get a lot of jazz music, uh, jazz influence even if it's just in like the thickness of the chords and like the mm-hmm. kinds of uh you know tonalities you have right and i think i was telling you about this at one point dustin there's like uh late 60s early 70s there's a lot of really great giallo films which are like italian murder mystery kind of like like proto slasher type movies okay and they are just like all about prog rock in, in those movies and it is so hilarious because it's like you're watching this really tense like <laughs> chase scene and like somebody's getting their throat slit or whatever and there's just like the whole time there's just like some guy on a drum set like oh would like the theme would like the theme from goblin be an example of that yes is that what yes, you're talking about yes yeah yeah oh, yeah goblin. exactly oh, goblin. Wow. Yes. yeah it's like what super it's like borderline like metal beat but like weird yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and it it's like it doesn't work at all but that's kind of why it works I right love it so much it's yeah, so, yeah. it just like have such a place in my heart for like giallo film scores and the films themselves are always right. fun because i always have like some ridiculous twists at the end they're fun um and actually, any, like I mentioned earlier, Ennio Morricone, who's like famous for doing like the uh, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly score, also did a lot of Giallo films where he does like a lot of you know prog rock type stuff. So yeah, once you get into the seventies, you get a lot of um, starting to get a lot of prog rock stuff, a lot of jazzy stuff. Uh, like you mentioned earlier, getting into John Carpenter, a lot of synthies type stuff, um, and all that stuff kind of just goes along with like what's happening in pop right. culture. Yeah, like just musically, like since we're becoming more popular and uh, John Carpenter just happened to see that potential in film before, you know, most other people did. Um, except for Wendy Carlos, who, of course, is like the one who like she she like co-built the mood. So, you know. Oh, wow. That. She did a I lot didn't of know that. Stuff. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, definitely recommend uh, looking up Wendy Carlos, especially if you are. I don't want to get political or anything, but she is a trans woman. So for anybody who is, you know, interested in that kind of thing, she is. Right. Um, That's some really cool history. Like, yeah. Yeah. She And she had this huge effect on me. I mean, any synthesizer you've heard in the last 50 years, like came from this mood that, that she built. So like, I mean, she's incredible. Love her. That's amazing. Wendy Carlos, you, know, you said. Um, Wendy Carlos. Yeah. And she okay. did the score for The Shining, which we mentioned earlier, and uh-huh. uh, also Clockwork Orange, which most of that is just classical music played on a synthesizer. Right. But, um, I mean, still, she built the whole fucking thing. So that's why. Either way. I mean, come on. Yeah. How would you classify like Tubular Bells, the Exorcist theme? Would you say that's kind of more on the prog side of it? Because once the drums and everything comes in and like the bass line, it doesn't really sound like a horror score anymore. So to me, um, I mean, maybe that's just my opinion, but no, you're exactly right. That's not a horror score right. that was written <laughs> and released and out in the world before anyone knew the exorcist was being made. Right. Not, uh, not before the book, but before the movie. And, um, what? Mala Schifrin, who did the score for, uh, Amityville horror was actually hired to write music for the exorcist. And he did. And then he like showed up, played the music and the director 
uh, William Freakin, I think, unless I'm mixing mm-hmm. up the writer and the director. No, you're right. He was like, okay, yeah, he was like, this is bullshit. This is the worst thing I've ever heard. And literally <laughs> threw like the records out the do- like out the window, like into the oh, street and like fired no. them on the spot. And then like totally separately, he was like in another meeting at somebody else's house and was just like flipping through records and was like, this looks cool and put on tubular bells and was like, oh my God, this is the, this is the sound. That's and so that's crazy. how it ended up in The Exorcist. Have you what? ever noticed yeah, that? The, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, because you're exactly right. The first minute of that song is like super creepy like it is in the movie. And the rest, I was listening to it today. The rest of it is like super pretty and like yeah. not scary at all. To me, it sounds like a Mannheim steamroller Christmas once everything comes in. It's like all, some parts of it absolutely all are. All of a sudden, yeah. it doesn't really sound scary at all. Um, it's kind of funny. <laughs> no, especially because at the end of it they're like introducing it's so cheesy because they're introducing like a new instrument every few bars and there's just a guy like going electric guitar and then there's like an electric guitar thing and there's like glockenspiel and then there's like a glock thing yeah it's so bizarre um you know something i noticed um and i don't know if they're by the same person but they're very very similar the theme from the amityville horror the original theme and the theme from stephen king's pet cemetery are basically the same theme so like the Amityville Horror and Pet Cemetery. I don't know exactly what intervals they are. I should have prepared that before this interview. But it's like that same like la 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 la. The Amityville Horror. I have I have like a tradition of watching that movie every time I move into a new house. So I've seen it like oh. hundreds <laughs> of times, and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so I love that score, but I've actually never seen Pet Cemetery, so I don't know. Oh, you should really? check it out. The music is actually really, really great. I like the music to that one for sure. I know the Ramones song from that movie. See, but, <laughs> but that's only that's like that's like the credits of the movie. The actual music in the movie is super spooky. Oh man, I was hoping they just played the Ramones for the whole movie. Now <laughs> right. I don't care. Right? I know. Now I don't care. <laughs> So oh, kind of, uh, so kind of moving, I guess, past the horror stuff for a minute. Dustin was telling me that you've, you still do, or you've done a lot of teaching. So I kind of wanted to get, or we kind of wanted to get your perspective on, kind of teaching. How did you get into it? How do you approach it? Um, what do you think about like music education in general? Um, I got into teaching just cause like I was in college and was like, Oh, I could teach guitar as like an easy side gig. So I, that's how I started. And, uh, that was in Savannah where I went to school and graduated. And then when I moved back to Atlanta, uh, I tried, well, I started working at school of rock, which is how I met Dustin. So, um, I was just teaching, you know, doing the regular lessons and, and stuff there. Um, and then I also, uh, I technically started my own business, which Kind of went somewhere and kind of didn't go somewhere. The goal was to like start after school music programs at schools that didn't have any programs. And then um, I reached out to three schools initially and only one of them got back to me. And so I did start the after school program there, but then she just wanted me to be there while she was on maternity leave. So I just like got in, I was like teaching the actual like school uh, for music for those couple months and then she ended up moving. So I was there for the rest of the year. So that's kind of how I got into it. And as far as like teaching formal, uh, you know, music classes and then um, started teaching at the school I was at a couple years ago before I moved. Um, and I think music education is great. I don't know who's saying like we, we don't need to teach music like that. That would be ridiculous. But I do know I'm a little <laughs> bit biased as far as thinking music is great. Um, right. But I think it's fantastic for a lot of reasons. Um, obviously, when you're like really little, it can help a lot with like motor skills and like motor planning and all that kind of thing. And then um, I think it's obviously people already are kind of familiar with like the way it can help your brain develop. And obviously, like I said, the motor skills and all that. But I like to use it also with like my third graders and higher to help kind of like expose them to things they wouldn't have heard. So I'm always Mm. trying to show them music from like like around the world. So I usually do like uh, uh, first semester with my students will listen to just American music, like uh, folk and jazz and blues, usually specifically, and then maybe some rock and roll, like if we have some chance, a chance to, but mostly like old stuff and how it like led into the new stuff. So they hopefully have a little bit of an appreciation and they're not just like, ah, this is old. I don't want to hear it. Right. <laughs> how it starts. 
And then like second semester, we go around the world and I show them, we do like three weeks in Brazil and then like three weeks in Japan or Germany or Italy or Iceland or Nigeria or wherever. And just try and show them like what music from other places sounds like. So that again, hopefully they're not like, this sounds so stupid. Like, cause that's usually what <laughs> right. initial response is. Right. So I think more, more so than the brain development and the motor skills, which are great. I think learning music and learning to appreciate music and listen to music from other cultures is probably, in my opinion, one of the most important things about teaching. I love That's that. amazing. Yeah. yeah. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Means the world. It was so nice to meet you. Dustin has talked a lot about you. And so I've been stoked <laughs> for this interview. <laughs> I'm oh, well, so excited. You. Of course. Yeah, man. It's been great. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Sex, Drugs, and Disappointment. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a review and connect with us more on Instagram and TikTok at SDD Podcast. Each episode is also available in video format on YouTube. And don't forget. Have fun. Don't do too much. And it's going to happen. Do, 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 do,